Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Nina Cranston, one of the most spectacular boxing promoters in the world. In this episode, we review the profile of the best fighter she has ever worked with, herself. At the age of 12, one of her brothers found her on the bathroom floor suffering from her first seizure, and that was the start of Nina's journey with epilepsy. And as you'll hear, it's also the start of so much of her strength, as Nina constantly fights to live her best life. I love her maxim that you are the only person who can turn your life around. So use your mindset powerfully, and she does. From the domestic violence she faced in a couple of relationships to the fighters that she built incredible bonds with, Nina has a lot of stories. And it's easy to be negative. It's easy to find excuses and make excuses, but Nina doesn't. She creates her own path, stays strong, keeps positive, and remains hopeful. Please enjoy this interview with the spectacular Nina Cranston. Hi, Nina. Welcome to the show. Hi, my lovely. How are you? Excellent. Now that I have the Black Widow of Boxing on my show, (laughs) thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Where do we start? The listeners would have heard an intro to your amazing background, and they know that I like to rewind people's highlight reels. So before we start talking about this amazing world of amateur boxing promoting that you're in and how wonderful you are, I like to rewind people's highlight reel all the way back to where they grew up, because I'm always so curious about parents and childhood and structure. So if you wouldn't mind sharing where you grew up. I was born in the London borough of Bromley, lovely, lovely area. I went to a Catholic school or girls school, and then my parents shipped us out two hours opposite direction into Canterbury. Everyone knows the Archbishop of Canterbury. We grew up there in a very nice middle-class house. My mum and dad are working class and they worked very hard to provide us with what we had. We lived in like a little close and there was only 14 or 12 houses. And they were all kind of well-to-do, wealthy people in this close. Pharmacists lived next door. The Prince Tennis Racket to Make, they lived opposite us. There was another person that owned a massive refrigeration company. And then there was us the London people, and they call us Cockneys. So there was us and it was that family. But my parents always taught us where the money came from, always made us work for what we wanted. If we wanted something hard enough, we had to work it. And that was the motto of my house. I went to great schools and I remember my dad was a market trader. I don't know if you know anything about war babies, but my dad was a war baby. So the education system wasn't great with him. And when they had no education, what a lot of people did was they did a thing called the markets which is going out and selling your wares. And you used to you know, shout, ladies and gentlemen, come and get your fruit and veg. And it was a thing that the Cockneys used to do. So having a father like my dad, and I'm my father's daughter, my brothers are my mother's sons. <laughs> my dad used to have me set on the markets with him since the age of seven. And we had a competition and it was an old ice cream bike. 
refrigeration on the front and you cycle it. And he put me at one end of Wimbledon, you know, the tennis, and he was at one gate and I'm at the other gate. And he said, right, we've got a competition. Who's going to sell the most ice cream and strawberries? And go. And he went off and I went off. Well, obviously I won superiorly because I'm a 10-year-old. <laughs> asking people who thought it was novel, right? Like, sort of curly head, get your strawberries and ice cream, come on, love. So that was the motivation. It was always fun earning money. He always made it fun and it was never a chore. He never felt, oh, I don't want to do that. It was, if you've got a brain, use it. My brother was always into doing camera stuff and singing and stuff like that. And I'll tell you another interesting story. My brother got into songwriting. When I lived in Bromley, I had neighbours, they were called Pat and Graham, and they used to live next door to me. And Pat used to sometimes babysit me. And I remember being about three or four, and this one particular day, this song kept coming on. I knew the song. I remember hearing the song before, and I knew the lyrics of the song. This one particular day, and I'll never forget it, I was four years old, and I remember they had this big TV in like a box, you know, like people used to put the wooden frames around the boxes of the TV. And I remember it being in the centre of their living room, in a bay window. We had a dog, a Rottweiler, who used to walk with me. Walk me up to Graham and Pat. So he used to sit outside and wait for me like a nanny and <laughs> drop me off at this neighbor's house. This song used to come in. It was a song, What's Love Got to Do With It? And I remember knowing the lyrics, this particular time, the woman was on the screen with this mad hair and she was doing this with her leg. And I remember imitating her. I remember them laughing and they were all clapping. I remember singing, Whoa, what's love? So it must have been exceptionally entertaining for these people. This little kid says to be singing this song. And I, I just remember it was a very joyous occasion. And then I fast forward to when I was 11 and my brother was doing this songwriting. And my mum and dad said to Simon, he said, you've got a few songs. And I remember really loving the songwriting. Mum said, if you want to see if your songwriting ability is good, why don't you send it to Graham? So I'm thinking, why would you send a demo to the next door neighbour who's a babysitter? It just didn't compute in my head. Lo and behold, Graham wrote What's Love Got to Do With It. And the reason why I was dancing around the living room when I was four was because it went to number one. He wrote What's Love Got to Do With It. He wrote Simply the Best. He wrote Just Good Friends, Michael Jackson. It was like, what? Graham wrote. <laughs> that was a really iconic moment that I'm so pleased as a four-year-old I can remember. That's incredible. Yeah. What a story. What a story. My other brother, he was into drama. He was doing a play at school and it was about Otis Redding. We were all brought up on music. My family was just all about soul, reggae, ska, and it was just all about the vibes. And I remember being at school and my brother for his A-levels was doing the Otis Redding story. There was a song, Otis Redding, Carla Thomas, and it's called Baby. I think I was helping with props or something. This girl was auditioning to play a lady called Carla Thomas. So she's come up and the song's Baby's come on and bless her. She tried. God loves a try. And she tried to sing Carla Thomas. It felt in the back of my mind, I was trying to help her. <laughs> I said, it goes like this. And I've gone, baby. And my brother's just gone, what the hell is that? If my sister is like singing <laughs> Carla Thomas exactly like Carla Thomas. That was the moment when they all found out that I was a singer. Then it was literally like, what? She can actually sing. She can actually hold a note. And then I took a turn for the worst. I woke up one day getting ready for school. I went to the bathroom and I'll never forget this. I opened up the bathroom door and usually locked the door. But this particular day, I didn't. I remember going in. And standing looking at the basement, and that's all I remember. And what happened was I'd fallen down. I'd had a seizure. And my brother's bedroom was right next door to the bathroom. You know, like the bath, you've got the plastic panel that kind of goes round on the bath. Mm -hmm. My hand had been beating on the panel. And my brother, being the old brother, was like, Nina, shut up! You know, because he'd have to get up to school. And it just carried on. And he got out of his bed, and he was, like, literally fuming. 
ready to beat the crap out of his sister. He's annoying him at eight o'clock in the morning. And he's opened up the door and he's just seen me seizuring and he just ran. Uh, got my mum and dad and all the families woke up. They were trying to get me to come round. The seizure was slowing down. And my brother Simon was trying to get my attention and looking back, you think, what the hell? But he got a pair of boxer shorts from the airing cupboard and he put them on his head and he was trying to make funny faces at me. And I genuinely remember waking up and thinking, why has he got pants on his head? And then I went back and I was taken into hospital for two weeks and I went under loads of tests and I was diagnosed a grand mal epilepsy. And it's hereditary in my family. And what my seizures do is, it's like a charge of a battery. If I don't get enough sleep, I'll seizure. My mum and dad are very caring, loving people. And my mum was actually the person that figured it out. She sat there monitoring what I ate, what I did. She flew me all over the world. She took me to see a witch doctor in Africa. As a parent, you would do. When you've got the picket fence family, you want to do whatever you can. And I went and saw Princess Diana's acupuncturist. I mean, she took me everywhere. Bless her. It's incurable. It's a brain disease. My mum got like a fold-down bed. I wasn't allowed to sleep in my bedroom anymore. I'd sleep in my parents' room. And I had a fold-down bed next to them. She changed the light bulb next to her bedroom into a blue light. So that if she woke up in the middle of the night, she could see me, but it wouldn't disturb me. I could fall asleep with it. That took a turn for the worst. And I think that it blew rock my family. I think it was very tragic for my brother Tiber to find me. I think that that was quite sad for him to deal with as a 17-year-old boy. Again, with my parents, but we march on, we move. How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was diagnosed at 13. So this was post beating your dad at Wimbledon in strawberry ice cream bar sales and <laughs> after your discovery of this beautiful voice. Yeah, crazy. The voice got me through. I mean, I think that my epilepsy is my roommate. If you're going to occupy apartment together, you have rules and regulations that you abide by. Like, this is yourself, this is my shelf. My epilepsy lives with me. He's my roommate. And there's certain things I can and can't do that he doesn't agree with. And if I don't want him to rear his ugly head, I've got to abide by his rules. So we share the Nina body together. That's the best way I can put it. And I said that to my doctor and he went, I've never heard of people like that. Brilliant. If I don't have enough sleep, he's going to get irritated and he's going to rear his ugly head. If I have too much caffeine, he's going to start wigging out. We're cool. We're having a great time. I love the framing of it. It's so positive and it's also so you. I've interviewed a lot of people and there's a lot of bright, positive people out there, but you're able to change the narrative in such a way that is beyond positive. Maybe it's part of the sales mindset that you have or the positivity or the boxing mindset, but it is just so positive that I don't think anyone who has epilepsy would equate it to being a roommate and dealing with this troubling roommate. As long as he pays his rent on time, I'm fine. But <laughs> it's in reflection. I mean, when I was diagnosed, I wasn't allowed to go to nightclubs. I wasn't allowed to drink alcohol. I wasn't allowed to do these things. I had my mom and dad picking me up. I think to myself, where I lived, there wasn't many job opportunities. And thank God I had a voice. That was the thing that took me all over London. I sang with Puff Daddy at Café de Paris when he was singing I'll Be Missing You and grabbed the mic, but I was a resident singer there. I sang with Alexandro Nios. It's amazing when you think back. Imagine if I was a teenager stuck in Canterbury, because Canterbury is an isolated city in the back end of Kent. There's not massive job opportunities. Like, certainly I'm not going to get a record deal there, that's for sure. If I'd have been stuck in Canterbury and I hadn't gone through the whole process of country, so when I saw people that were drunk or doing drugs, I was like, why would you want to do that? If I hadn't had that, where would I be? That's my mindset. I think it's sheltered me. I look at it as a blessing. It went over me in the time of where you can start doing so many wrong things that change your course. So maybe that's part of the growth as well. Another nice way to reframe this condition that you were born with, and you mentioned it's hereditary, but that you've dealt with it so beautifully. So you're 12 or 13, you were diagnosed with epilepsy, but you mentioned a lot of singing when you were in your teen years. How do you transition with epilepsy while singing to boxing? How did that all happen? 
with the singing, I was obviously doing the live events, which I absolutely loved. There is no better feeling. You cannot put this in any drug or any chemical. When you're standing there on a stage and no one knows you for the first time and you open your mouth and all of a sudden that whole room shuts up and they're like, oh, my God. And then you go into your own world because when you're singing, you're in your own element, you're listening to the words you're singing and you're telling the story through a voice. And then when it comes to that end bit and you open your eyes and the audience is to stand there in awe, that is pure magic. You know you're alive there. For me, it was all about the live performance. It was never about the money. Don't get me wrong, I did some sessions singing for Tina Turner. I remember I got my first check, like 150 quid for singing one song. And I was like, damn. But never really liked studio. But obviously studio was part and parcel of it. Studio, there's no vibe. Don't get me wrong, I recorded some good songs. Obviously, but it was a way forward to become an artist. You had to do it. I got roped up with an American company. It was all dreams and promises and this and that. I got roped up with another lady. I'm not going to mention her name because she's actually quite well known in the UK still, but she wasn't a very nice manager at all. It took the love away from me when I started getting involved with the industry side of the recording and the record companies. It's all completely different. Now you're talking with the big wigs and it killed the buzz for me. And a few incidents happened and everyone kept saying to me, your voice is a godsend. And I kept thinking, well, it doesn't feel like it now. My mum and dad, I forgot to mention, had left for Spain and they asked me to go with them. And I just said, there's nothing in Spain for me. I'm going to stay here. So I continued to stay here and try and pursue a music career. I got married and thought it was the right thing to do because mum and dad were obviously worried about their daughter. They loved my ex-husband who turned out to be a bit of a scallywag and a, a bit of an arse, should we say. There was a bit of domestic violence. There was a big gap from that. And then we'd accumulated some businesses over the time when I was married. When I met my husband, I think he thought I was going to be the next big singer and the love went through from me. My ex-boyfriend, prior to that, when I was 21, I mean, I was 24, he said to me, you're doing this singing, but you're not earning any money. It made me feel so low because I was doing studio work. You record an album, you're not getting paid for that because you're signed to a label. So when he said that, I just thought, I'm never going to feel like anyone owes me anything anymore. Those comments killed the singing for me. And obviously then when I got married, I started to think, well, I'm not earning any money. Maybe I should do work. And me and my ex-husband worked hard. We got a nightclub, a pub, a cab office with my parents. We were working. I'm thinking, okay, by the age of 30, I'm going to be able to retire. I was investing in stuff. And, and then we got divorced and he took everything. You hear about all these housewives and stuff taking things. He forged my signature on three of the properties and he walked away with 850000 He also tried to take money from my parents, but we got him in time. It was just like, what the hell is going on? And there was a lot of domestic violence, but he taught me a valuable lesson. Fast forwarding to the boxing, I was seen somewhere and one of my friends said, come down a boxing show. And I went, what? And I was like 28, 29, getting back out there into the social circle. And I said, what do I want to go to a boxing match for? I remember watching boxing when I was a kid, loved it. ITV, we used to put it on at 10 o'clock at our time, and it was free. And I remember watching a guy called Frank Bruno with the funniest laugh, world champion. And he'd go, right, Frank? These funny things as a kid, you always remember, it's like WWF wrestling, Macho Man Randy Savage. He used to be like, oh. He always had the favourite, and it was Frank Bruno who was one, and I used to remember because he had this brilliant laugh. I love boxing, obviously. Mike Tyson, obviously being in a house of men and the boxing championships come up, you do watch a few things. But I think I've never been to a boxing show. I watched it on TV and I love it, but what the hell? So I, I just said, yeah, you know, we'll go. My brothers, by the way, were already artists within themselves. They were called the jewelers. They were doing street busking. And I did a bit of street busking as well. But a lot of people in the Southeast were hearing about them at the time. 
they were doing very well, my brothers. I remember going into this place and Freddie Bate, his name was, and I remember sitting there and my friend said, oh, this is Nina, she's a singer. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, you good? I was like, I'm okay. And my friend went, okay, she's amazing. My friend, do you know the band The Jewelers? D-U-A-L-E-R-S. And he went, oh, The Jewelers. He said, of course I do. He said, can you sing? I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you sing in half time? I went, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could sing in half time. You know what? I've never actually been so scared in all my life. I've sung in front of thousands, but this is a boxing show. Standing at the table and singing, they're looking at me going, she can sing again. And now they're trying to push me in the ring. And I'm like, I don't want to go in the ring. But I got in the ring and everyone was talking. And then when they realised it was actually me singing, a lot of people were going, we thought it was a track playing. We didn't realise it was a girl singing until I walked into the ring. The guy that was promoting the show reached out to me on social media. He's like, you're the singer. Come down again. You were fantastic. It was a great show. We'd love to have it. I was like, yeah, okay. It was a good reception. So we got talking and stuff. And then we ended up dating. He fell out with his business partner. Obviously, we still had the club office. I was there to help. And I just said, if things aren't going okay with your partner, we were working on shows together anyway. All of us. It's a progression over like a year. I just said, look, I don't mind helping because he couldn't do social media and he's not really good in typing and stuff. I said, look, I'll do what I can. But in that year, he had got extremely paranoid. It was edging out. Then the domestic violence started. It was more that someone was going to steal him away from me because he was older than me. He told me he was 35. He was actually 45. He felt like I could easily go out and go to nightclubs. I was that age. And he didn't want me to do anything. He wanted to cage me. And so where it came to phone calls, I had to start putting people on loudspeak because he didn't want me to arrange things without him knowing. That's how it started. I want to go out. He let them get away with one thing and the next thing, and he got horrifically bad. I had a cousin that was living with me. He was helping me with the boxing, actually, and his father is actually my cousin, and he's obviously my second cousin, and his father died when I was 10 years old. He was brutally murdered and stabbed, and obviously he had no father figure. I took him in as like my little brother. He was helping out, but I think with my cousin, it was quite hard because he was not seeing the domestic violence. He was seeing the aftermath. He would never do anything around my cousin, but my cousin knew it was going on. We were still doing the boxing shows. It was had his name in lights. It was him. I was always the person behind the scenes doing everything, doing the matchmaking, learning from him, doing all these things. But the relationship side was going really completely down the hill. I'll give you an example. I wanted to go and see my friend who lived literally 200 yards, 300 yards away from me, and he refused. I said, I want to go and see my friend Sam. He said, no, it's not happening. You never know who's going to be at a flat. I said, I just want to go and see my friend. He said, you're not going. And a week previously, he'd attacked me with an attachment to a hoover. Oh, a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> a vacuum cleaner. He hit me a couple of times with that. I'd had a couple of bruises. I knew what was coming. And I don't know what the hell come over me. I went, I'm going. And I had a bed. And he was on the other side of the bed. And I just ran for the stairs. And I was in my lounge. And then I had to go down loads and loads of flights of stairs to get to my friend Sam's. And I remember running down my stairs. And then all of a sudden, I heard his footsteps coming down to the wooden stairs. And my heart. It was the most horrific thing I thought. Once I get around the corner, I'm fine. But then I forgot we had these big concrete steps. And if I was ever going to make them steps at that speed, I was going to fall over. They were quite steep outside the building, concrete steps. So it was like a large townhouse, like a brownstone, really. I remember thinking, slow down, I'm going to fall over, I'm going to bash your teeth. And it was cold, slowed down a bit. I got out of the main bit, gone around the corner and it grabbed me. And I'm saying, get off me, get off me. And then I started seeing curtains, people are looking out the window. So I'm thinking, oh, now I'm going to create an attention. Get in the effing car. I don't know why we got in the car. We got in the car, plonked in the passenger seat. And I just said to him, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And he grabbed me by the wrists and he was yanking me towards him and yelling. So I'm being pulled towards him. He's trying to justify why I couldn't 
go to my friend. I don't know why I did this. And I just went, stop it, you're hurting me. And I yelled back saying, stop it, you're hurting me. And that was it. He headbutted me. I went to scream, but nothing came out. The pain was that painful. Nothing came out. He started the engine up and he drove away from the building and onto the main road. And he was screaming again, look what you made me do. And it was my fault. And I remember thinking, oh, it is my fault. I yelled in his face, it is my fault. I just said to him, I think I better go to hospital. And he pulled up the car. And I said it really quietly. And I said, I think I better go to hospital. And he said, look at me. He said, I've done boxing matches. Your nose is effing fine. You're fine. You don't need to go to hospital. I took his word for it. He's seen many a broken nose. What do I know? My nose is broken. <laughs> it's blatantly still broken to this day. I remember just thinking, this is life. Two days after when he broke my nose, I had another seizure, a really, really bad one. I was out for nine hours. How long had it been since you had a seizure from that moment? The last seizure I had under grandma epilepsy, I was 16. This seizure, I was 30. 14 years. The reason why we knew it was different was obviously the blow to the head, but it never happened in the morning. And that's what differentiated the two. All my seizures happened in the morning. This happened in the afternoon. I was up and about, and there's a thing called an orb. My limbs will fly out, and it's a signal to let me know I'm having a seizure. I didn't have any orb. I didn't have anything like that. I had a rush of heat, which I've never had. And my cousin found me, which is horrific for him. I remember being kind in the ambulance down the stairs. And then I remember waking up at Farber Hospital and it was nighttime and they were all around my bed. My ex was there, my mum, my dad, and my niece was there. She was only a baby. That's what my cousin was seeing, the aftermath. We were doing quite well at the boxing. We were actually rising up. We decided to move to another apartment and my cousin moved with us and he was doing a very good job. He was designing the posters and doing other bits of social media. And this one particular day, obviously there was arguments in between, but I think we might have been arguing about unpacking. And this new apartment just had one flight of stairs straight down to the front door. The front door was open. I remember having the windows open. He'd had a go at me about something. I think he got a bit too abusive and my cousin had had enough. I think my cousin seized the opportunity to have a go at him. And he was a young kid. He was 23 and he's a 45-year-old ex-amateur boxer, had over 100 fights. And my cousin never had a boxing fight in his life. There was something that was said. My cousin said, I'm not having it anymore. You're not doing this to my cousin. And he went, doing what? What am I doing to your cousin? He said, you're not doing it. I know what you're doing. You're not doing it. Hearing this conversation, I walked out. The staircase was in front of me. My ex had his back to me. I could see my cousin's face. I'm like creeping out as if to say, what is going on? He pulled a knife out on him. Knowing my cousin's background, knowing that his father was murdered by a so-called friend of his, the trauma it can leave, I snapped. I put up with it for so long. I had my ex-husband do the same. I was never that girl that was troubled to be with. I wasn't a dramatic girlfriend. And something inside me just like, nah, I'm not having this. So we had a standoff, a big empowering moment for me. I said, you can do what you like to me. You can beat the crap out of me. You can black my, you can break my nose again, but you are not pulling out a knife on that boy. Do you understand me? Now get out of my house. This is my house. I pay the bills. He went, what are you going to do? Who are you going to bring? And I said, I'm not going to bring anyone. I said, Ricky, you have broken me. Get out. What are you going to do now? Do what you've done before. And I'm not being funny. He actually shit himself because there's nothing he could do. He'd already done it. You've already given me your worst. You've broken me for two years. There's nothing more you can take from me. What are you going to do? Murder me? You've got a witness. And that was it. And I remember walking forward. He was backing off downstairs. Scared because I just was enraged. How dare you? You want to pull out a knife on him? I'm not scared of you anymore. Going to the question, 
How'd I get into the boxing? My ex-husband robbed me blind. He took everything from me. I wasn't about to let a man strip me of everything again. And so I decided, because I was doing all the boxing, I'd be making up shows in those two years and he wouldn't even get a fight. I'd get them all. And I just thought, I've invested all this time. I'm going to do boxing. This is my life. I'm going to live it. And the last two years, I've been your apprentice. Let's see what I've learned. And I've seen things that I will take from you and use it. And there's things I would never do. So there's a lot of things I learned from him. Not only boxing, I learned about myself and what I can do and what I'm worth. That's how I got into boxing. I am going to wait for the movie of your life story because we haven't even really gotten into the full career of amateur boxing promoting, but that is extraordinary. For those who are listening to this story and don't understand how someone who had a family that surrounded you with love, you talk about your parents so adoringly, how do you think, whether it was your first marriage or that second relationship, that someone as strong as you, as loving and as positive as you, stayed in these relationships that you knew were not good for you? Your first husband, you said, was abusive to you. The second relationship that really introduced you to boxing, as that second incident happened, why not walk? That's a very good question, actually. Every person in every walk of life brings something to the table that you think you need. We all do. We all think, this guy makes me laugh. I need that in my life. And let's bear in mind, people, when you're listening, I am the most naive girl who lived with their mother and father in their lay-down bed till I was 20 years old. So I was a bit naive to the whole thing. I stayed in these relationships that expressed with the marriage because my mum and dad were worrying. I didn't want them to worry. I felt safe in a different aspect. My first husband, he was horrific. This man made me vulnerable to the world of corruption. He would scam people out of money and the people would come to the door. Our whole marriage is another story and we've only got an hour. So he bought different things. With this other guy, my husband was never a fighter. People used to take advantage of him. Where my ex, he brought... Oh, I'm a protector. I protect my house. So that's what I was probably giving off to the universe. I need protection from after that. When you give off a vibe, I'm lonely. The first person to walk through the door is never going to be the best one. He came in like a Greek bearing gifts at that time of what I wanted and what I needed. And that honeymoon period, there's no such thing as a honeymoon period. Do you know what it is? Acting for six months maximum of how they want you to perceive them. But they can only hold that pretense up for six months. And that's what he was doing. He was holding a pretense up this, I'm a provider, I've got this, I've got that. And then the cracks started falling through. After the six months, he couldn't hold it together no more. That's when you're in it. That's when you think as a young, naive girl, I'm in it now. How am I going to get out of it? And you know it's wrong. But then you start fearing and then it might happen once a week, a bit of a flare up. You keep clinging on to the moments and when you're laughing, I'm here for the laugh, I'm here for the good times. And you try and get rid of the bad times, but the bad time was always going to be there. There's different qualities at that time that I was looking for that they brought to the table. But it's not about what qualities people can give you. It's about what you give out and don't look to get anything back. If I meet someone who's great, great. But, you know, you're going to meet on my terms, on my rules. That puppy love, it was very much that girl as well. It was all about that and every quality I kept seeing and it was always in the wrong people. Fast forward to the end of that relationship where he wielded a knife in front of your cousin and that was your moment. What happened next? You'd mentioned that he taught you the goods and the bads of boxing promoting. You took parts of that style. But how did Nina, as the boxing promoter, grow? I couldn't even tell you when I even decided to do it. I was chatting to my cousin Barry and I just said, you know, well, I could do a show. We'll do it then, Nina. If you watch Snatch and you look at the guy that creates all the unlicensed boxing shows, back in the day it was called Unlicensed, but it's not unlicensed. Those are the people that are doing the boxing shows in London. It wasn't fabricated. This was happening in the 1990s. They were all gangsters. There was no woman out there. 
the people that we were doing work with were related and sons of gangsters. It did exist. I've come from this relationship and I said, I'm going to do a boxing show. I need to be a bit sneaky. So I went on social media, I opened up this Facebook account and I called it Touch Glove Promotions. And the owner was called Bill and the receptionist was called Christina. When you used to ring the phone up, me and my cousin would hunt down fighters. And I knew how to talk like a guy because I've got brothers in the market. So I was like, all right, mate, how's it going? Yeah, I'll see you had a couple of fights. And I'll do it all and I'll be typing. When they come to get the tickets, I'd get Barry to meet them. And if they rung the phone, it was Christina on the phone. No, Bill's not here at the moment. Lied and blagged my whole way through it. It was crazy. And then right near the end of the first promotion, not the actual fight, obviously I had to let the boys know that it was me. Because I was told that I was getting a lot of threatening phone calls from various different people. I don't know who they were. I don't know who they are to the state. You're making boxing a mockery. Why don't you stick to singing? Why don't you F off back to the kitchen? You're a woman. I had some serious death threats. And let me tell you something. When you've been to places where I've been, I know where it's going to go. And you don't ring me up. You don't tell me you're going to come for me. To me, that's amateur. If you're going to come for me, you're just going to come. For warning me, you're going to come. You're not coming. That's how I looked at it. So when I used to get a death threat, I used to go, okay, sweet. Thank you very much for calling by. No retaliation. Because my main objective was that boxing show. You can throw your stones in. It's a pebbly beach. I'm still walking. But it went round in a very short amount of time that it was me and my other half that we'd broken up. He put a boxing show on the same day as me to prove a point. And obviously he's got a name. I haven't. He got wind it was me and I've got wind from a fight. He said he's pulled the show. I said, what do you mean? He's pulled out his own show. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if you're pulling your show, my show's going to collapse because I'm nobody. Who am I? So I just said, well, don't pull it, just crack on with it. I had got everything ready and people, the cameras were down there and my referee was still my referee to this day. He absolutely loved the fact I was, I was doing this show. I just cracked on with it. And I said to my friend, is anyone out there? And she went, oh yeah, there's a few people. And I went, a few? This thing you 4,000 people. What do you mean a few? Freaking out. My friend says, Nina, you need to introduce yourself. I'm not walking that way. He went, Nina, you need to introduce who you are. Don't hide no more. Introduce who you are. Mark come on the thing and he said, I want to introduce you to the promoter. There's another famous boxing promoter, Tyson Fury's boxing promoter, Frank Warren. He had done a St. George's Day special. He sold 2,000, and I think I sold 2,300 tickets. I had sold him. And I remember walking out and looking, because you can't really see anything. It's pitch black. But I remember just hearing voices either side of me. It's like, there's people here. And then you're seeing all the people on the tables, and I've done it. And I wasn't a drinker, but trust me, if we go and see the footage of Touch Club Promotions, Nina Grant, I introduced Julius Francis. He fought Mike Tyson. I was a little tipsy. I was like, what do you think of the fight? And he was like, it's great. I went, how do you think it was done by a woman? He went, was it? And I went, yeah, it was done by me. And he went, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I've got it all on camera. It's all evidentially there. And then I knew I was onto something. The crazy thing was I hid from it. I played it very low key. I would make my voice a lot more masculine because I don't, I don't know why I did that. If I was a bit blunt feminine, I think... The boys wouldn't think, oh, yeah, she knows what she's talking about. So I really played it out. Like, yeah, what? We did a show, which is a two British films. I don't even know how I did it, but I got two of these guys in the movies to fight each other. So it's like celebrity fights. We were trying to get a bit of press involved, but because press in this country don't like the whole highlighting hooligan films. This was in 2010. Barry Silkman, he's a great, great guy, said to me, I've got a friend of the contacts. We might be able to get this in the mirror. He's a football agent. The guy was like, yeah, look, you know, speak to my secretary. Um, and I'm sitting there going, yeah, listen, that's going to be a great fight. It's a charity fight. I'm really like putting the masculine voice. He said, just send me over a, a picture of yourself and we might be able to run it. We might be able to do a piece in the little long column down the side. I said, okay. The phone's run and it's the guy. And he said, I've just got these pictures over. Have you sent me a picture of one of your girlfriends or something? He said, well, is this picture of this girl here? That's not the girl I've been speaking to, is it? Yeah, that's Nina. He went, no. So they booked me in a massive photo shoot. 
they lapped. And all the while, I'd been running from my biggest seller, which was myself. <laughs> so that blew up. And I got a massive center spread in the Easter edition. And that's when it all started going, hey, well. Amazing. You had mentioned the style of boxing that you had learned from in terms of promoting. What is the signature Nina boxing promoter style? Can't give too much away because then we'll start doing it. <laughs> I make my job look easy. Everybody says it. Before the show, I am stressed out. When the show starts, it flows. It's like a production. But that only comes from experience. Now, I know people have tried to do boxing shows and failed because it is very stressful. Your stress levels have got to be, you've got to be able to tolerate everybody. Your key thing is nurturing. You have to nurture these boys. You can't lie to these boys. Trust is a key because I'm not getting in the ring. They are. So where I've seen people match up, say, Tommy with Johnny, and Johnny's had more fights than Tommy, and Tommy sells a load of tickets, but they don't want to pay out for an opponent, hypothetically. They'll put this guy together. Tommy gets smashed to pieces because Johnny's experienced, but because the promoters earn loads of money out of it, that's not a boxing match. That's what you call unfair. So I nurture my boys. I go down, I go to the gym, I watch them, I study them. I get to know their family because that's another part of boxing what people don't understand. If you're mentally not in the game, if you had an argument with somebody or you've had a fallout or there's some stress going on, if your head isn't in the game, then you are going to lose the fight before you've even stepped in that ring. My job is to mentally prepare them as well. One of my boxers, he's unfortunately not fighting in March, but we've all said he's mentally not ready. He'll be back in June, but mentally it's too much he earns good money out of me, I earn good money out of him. But it's the fact that he's not telling me he's not fighting. I'm going, right, yeah, you're not fighting, mate, because your head's not in the game. And why didn't you tell me this was going on? Dad said to me to ring you. You should have rung me because I could have helped you with this, but it's too far gone now, isn't it? That's how I am with them. And it's not about being nosy. I get to know their other halves. We're all part of a family. If there's something going wrong, I've had other halves calling me. And it doesn't matter if you sell five tickets to 400 tickets. You all get treated the same. If you come to me, I'm here. The circle of trust. And I'm at the helm, the nurturing side. As a woman, maternal, that's what works for me. And I'm bloody good at what I do. There's a female executive in banking and investments. Her name's Sally Krawcheck. One interviewer asked her, did it hurt you or help you that you were a woman in the field of finance or field of investments? And her answer was yes and yes. 100%. For you, you mentioned the strength of being a woman in this male-dominated field, but that nurturing component. What else do you think makes you good at being a boxing promoter? The common sense of it all, I'm very good at. As a boxing promoter, I'm thorough. I will go all out. If I'm going to pay money to go and see someone fight, and let me explain to you, it's going to be a minimum of £40, maximum £150. Now, if I'm going to pay that amount of money, I don't want to just see my mate have a fight for nine minutes and him knock someone out for 50 quid. I'll go out and have a meal for that with my parents. I want to see a show. So from the start to the finish, my boxing shows are shows. I have showgirls come out. I have the glamorous things, not on the community ones, on the big boxing shows. We have showgirls. We have singers. We have entertainment. If you don't come glam, you're not getting in. You're not here to watch someone get knocked out. You're here to watch a boxing show. And I don't want people going, yeah, I'm going to go to the bar because it's not on until four more fights. I want bums on seats to watch the show. And in between, you get to see something nice, glamorous, get a nice glass of Prosecco or champagne, you're sitting there. And I think those feminine little touches, they work. And I've had people go, you're clashing with someone else's show. Who's that show? Nina's show. I had a woman, I didn't realise it until later, 
It was her first boxing show and her son was boxing and he won. She was right at the end on the road seat and she went, I actually love it. Next one, I'm going to be there. And I went, I'm having a VIP table. I said, you go for it. You do it. You go and get that champagne. The next fight came up. This said quite a lot to me. Her son came out. He was in the first half. And unfortunately, he lost. What usually happens is when your crowd's there and you lose, the crowd will get up and they'll vacate the building. That happens quite a lot. His crowd stayed the whole entire show. They genuinely lost and they stayed for the entire show. And I remember during the auction, turning around and you're still here. And they were like clapping. And I was like, but Tyler lost the third fight in, six fights to go. So those little things. And I also think that we do a lot for the communities. We also give back as well. I think that's quite important. This will be my last question on boxing before we switch to the other questions I ask everyone. For someone who doesn't know the process of boxing promoting, can you expand on that in terms of how early you get involved? Are you sourcing the boxers at a young age? Are you helping them train? Are you helping them find coaches? Like, What is the process for you in terms of the full boxing promoting landscape? Before, it was always you were hunting. You were using social media and you were hunting. It's like you'd hear about a show and then you'd look, what is this? Now the name has obviously got well-known and there's only one Nina in boxing. Now people are coming forward. I don't approach boxers anymore. They come to me. When I do approach them, they're part of my anti-knife crime, which is the same with you guys in America where there's no funding, where the kids are on the streets and the gangs and we have this same thing in London. I pay for their coaching. If they want to box, they get paid as well. So $2,000, it depends on how many tickets they sell. But it's all about the process of getting them when they want to. You can't force someone in the ring. My boy, Harry, he beat leukemia in lockdown. And now he's my junior champion. And he's 15 years old, beat cancer in lockdown, always wanted to be a boxer. And now he is. It's all about getting someone who wants to make that difference. And if they want to make that difference, when you come to me, there's no such word as can't. Because if I can get through stuff, so can you. It's your mindset. I've got to give a big shout out to my friend, Big Mike, who was one of my mentors when I was in my marriage. And he stayed all the way through with me till now. He was like a bit of a father figure to me. He guided me through a lot of things. And another big one is Tama Hassan, the actor. He's also a very, very dear friend of mine. Very well-known British actor. I've known him since I was 22 years old. But he's always followed my career. I was at one of these venues and he turned up at the booth and everyone's going, oh my God, it's Tama Hassan. Because he knew all the shit I'd been through, but I was still there. And it was packed. He went, where are the haters at? <laughs> and then he went, this is fucking brilliant. Tim Witherspoon, he turned up. I mean, American heavyweight champion of the world. Just turn it out of the blue. They would just turn up. When you go through that, stand up for what you believe in, and you do boxing in the right way, people start to notice. If you do a good job, people will notice it. You don't have to shout from the rooftops, hey, look at me, I'm doing a good job here. Do the job, show you can do it, and that's the only way people are going to notice you. Don't talk about it. I never spoke about it. I don't even like a poster of me going out. I'm a very strong believer in don't talk about it, just do it, and then people will recognise you. Tamar Hassan, one of the best, biggest British actors, walked in. He was living in LA at the time. He was back and forth. He was in Game of Thrones. He was an amateur boxer. Tim Witherspoon, another great support. I could go on, but the thing is, when you do good and you do all these shows, I can sleep easy at night. I've never done anyone no wrong. When you do good, I'm one of the people, don't yell it from the rooftops. Do it, head down. You don't know whose attention you're going to attract. And I think that that's what my boxing shows did. They got attention because there was love, care in everything that I did and do. Love, care and attention with the fighters, with the crowd, with the shows that I did. And that's what makes me a good promoter. I genuinely care and I want people to walk away happy. If you do a good job, people are going to tell three, four people. 
you've done a good job. You've done something bad, they're going to tell 10. So the odds are against you. So you've always got to keep pushing to do good. People will recognize it. Don't ram it down the throats. Just do it. You mentioned there's only one Nina in boxing, but there's only one Nina Cranston in the world. And my <laughs> goodness, you are a mighty fighter yourself. Who or what inspires you? I shock myself, which inspires me to drive on, to push forward. When I have something negative thrown at me, my reaction, you added with that really well. Look back at what I've done good and I go, well done, girl. I wouldn't say inspired. The only person that I would genuinely say has inspired me, and this is going to be so cliche, was Tina Turner. Knowing her background and what she went through, we had the same reaction. I never watched the movie What's Love Got to Do With It until it wasn't in that period. I think it helped with my growth. I could see very similar paths, you know what I mean? Like if you watch her documentary and when she talks about things and she's done all she wants to do, she wants to sink back. She's never really wanted to be massively in the light. She doesn't like the light. I don't like the light, but you've got to do the job to get it done. And we understand that. And I love the way that she says about things. It's her life. And no one has the right to abuse that. Her attitude was just keep on going. And I felt a massive connection with that. You are so inspiring to me. When you think about all the things you've done, starting from the early days of beating your dad at Wimbledon ice cream sales to battling epilepsy to being an amazing singer and then also this fantastic boxing promoter, what are you most proud of? Wow, proud of? To be honest, I'm most proud of my name because when you say my name, if I saw that in lights and I knew everything about what that person, that girl had gone through and where she is now, that's the most proud thing I am. You know, I can see my name in lights. If I was any young budding girl and I saw that girl's name in lights, I'd look and go, anything is possible because this girl's done it. I love that so much. One question that I started asking more recently in the podcast, what does success mean to you? It came about because we were talking how so many people on the show or without a doubt successful, whether it's boxing promoting or entrepreneurs or investors or educators. And the traditional definition of success is very easy to state, but all the guests I've had are so thoughtful. And so generically, you could say, oh, it's how many fights you've promoted and how many boxers you've nurtured and given attention to. But I'm just curious how you define success for yourself. Success is, for me, when people know you in a positive, inspirational way. Not about money. Believe you me, I've just quoted how much money I've lost and gained, lost and gained, and get that back. But when people succeed in this, when the people know what you do and it's positive and you are inspiring people, when people start thinking like me, I am succeeding. <laughs> I've got a roof over my head. I've got food in my mouth. I'm happy. As I said in my documentary, I'm eating it and I'm happy. Success for me is when people start saying, that Nina, she done it, so can I. That's success, isn't it? It's like a legacy. That's amazing. People start looking at me and going, I look up to her. Wow. Winning. Well, you're still so young and you already have a legacy and a very strong one and positive one at that. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else you do. Going back to the last couple of questions that I asked folks, starting with the name of the show, we've talked a lot about your struggles and a lot of adversity. Instead of focusing on the failure, the way that I used to ask the question is, what was your biggest failure? And as a result, so many of the stories highlighted a growth outcome from it. And you've spoken about this last year, but you think about losses as not losses. It's learning. It's you win, you draw, or you learn. What are some of your biggest growth moments that you can share which inevitably has some type of struggle and adversity. When you try and please other people and you're not happy, you're letting yourself down. You can't do anything in life on a negative. You can't do anything when that's looming over you. The growth moment is 
when I was down trying to please everybody else, whether it was boyfriends, mom, dad, brothers, this, I was unhappy. And I can only achieve when I am happy. And I'm not here to people please people. If you don't like the tone of my voice, then turn off the radio. If you don't like the way I look, then turn over the TV. But the message is very clear. I'm happy, but I'm not here to people please. I'm not here to offend people. My growth from the failure is I think I've gone through life trying to make people proud and trying to reassure my parents that boxing is okay. It's not a bad thing to be. And obviously my parents are older and I understand they're a different generation. I am who I am. And that was when I let myself down for trying to please other people. Now, world, you better watch out because I'm in the building. (laughs) And that is how it's going to be. And that makes me smile so much. Having that attitude, even in lockdown, I met some amazing people. Because I learned a lot about myself. And I think that the key thing that everyone should do is take time out and get to know you. Don't try and fit into society. Don't look on Instagram and look at the next person if they've got a slim waist or they've got makeup done and their hair looks amazing. Look at yourself and think you're amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're a beautiful girl. Embrace the world for what it is. But one thing you have to accept is who you are. Don't hold back. Just be who you want to be. If it's proactive, go do it. It's amazing because as you described yourself in the failure state or adversity state, and then in this growth state where you are comfortable in your own skin and you then unleash this Nina, you've unleashed a supernova. It's it's even more powerful than the Nina who is trying to please people. And that is just beautiful. So whether your name is in lights or not, it is something to be proud of. Really extraordinary. Thank you. Last question. What's next for Nina Cranston? Oh, so I'm in a movie. We're filming in February, an English movie. One of my friends, Richard John Taylor, cast me in a movie. Look, acting is fun. We all act in some way, shape or form. Being cast in a movie is a really cool thing. But I would never, ever play a boxing promoter. I always like playing the villains or I think that's good acting. But I think it's come a bad time of the year because I play a sex trafficker, which is not very good in this current climate. Do you know what I mean? It is what it is. It's a very powerful film. And one of my, I was about to say who she was then, but another one of my idols. Uh, So it's lovely to play alongside her. I've got Time Fighter Championship, which is my baby. We're trying to launch that now, get that on the TV screens. Great concept. Watch out, people. So just keep looking out for the instance because it's going to be going off. And now my actor friend, Tamar Sands, joined me on it, which is going to be great. So it's going to be me versus him as promoters promoting four boys. He's got four boys and it's a prize fight for money. So that's going to be hilarious because we're just two funny entities. Obviously, I signed with Electric Avenue production company in your neck of the woods with Will Arnett. And they're making the documentary, The Black Widow Boxing, into a TV series for cable. So this is getting crazy. 12 years ago, I got told to F off back to the kitchen. And now I'm signing a deal with Will Arnett, an A-list celebrity in Electric Avenue with Sony. What are the odds on that? But, you know, all the haters, you can buy tickets, you're going to be watching it on Netflix, and you might even be in it. Nina, you are such an inspiration. I am so honored to have you on my show. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You're more than welcome. Anytime. And you get exclusive when I do become this supernova, like you just said. It's always about a support system. And I appreciate anyone who listens, who's continued to listen on this podcast, and especially you for having me and finding me. As you described trying to uncover the latest talent with boxing, I just try to read and consume all these profiles of people who not celebrities in terms of they're on People magazine or in the newspapers, stories that are people next door who are so inspiring. And what you've done both for yourself and also your boxing promoters, there's one article I read that really highlighted the bond you create with your boxers. And that's exceptional. And then when I read further about your background, 
<laughs> like this is going to be made into a movie. So I'm actually not surprised that you are signing with Will Arnett and highlighting this life because it is extraordinary. I feel so grateful that you are on the show. One last question. Where can people find out more about you? Obviously, Facebook, Nina Cranston page. I'm always doing things on there. Instagram, Nina Cranston. One, we are launching the Nina Cranston website in the next month, but that will obviously all be on the social media. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I'm sorry, guys, I really am not cool on TikTok and Snapchat. I'm a little bit too old for that. But I'm always announcing stuff. I'm always doing something crazy. And if you don't see me on Instagram, you'll definitely see me on a TV. And that is not me being big-headed. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Nina, thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you so much.